sanctuary was decorated for Advent. We, as we were decorating this past, <clears throat> this past week, we noted the fact that we really missed it last year, and it feels good to be in this space together in this time. And now we're reading from the Gospel According to Saint Luke. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power, great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, and that day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap, for it will come upon all who live on the face of the earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The Gospel of the Lord. As a kid, I used to dread August and September. Well, now that I think about it, I guess most kids have strong feelings about August and September. It's hot, it's the end of summer, gotta go back to school. But for me, there was another little bonus. I had hay fever. My nose didn't stop running, nor my eyes watering until a couple weeks after Labor Day. And if I let it get too bad, then I'd have these asthma attacks. Now, the obvious question would seem to be, well, so then why did you let it get bad? Well, the reason for that is because of the medicine. The antihistamines that I took often felt worse than the itching eyes and the snotty nose, which is saying something because those things, as a constant state of being, were torturous. 
Now, staying inside in the air conditioning helped. But the problem was, <clears throat> I grew up in Michigan. We didn't have air conditioning. So if I wanted any relief, I, I either had to go to the mall or take my medicine, which, as I say, was pretty awful. Taking it made me feel as though I were sort of swimming in corn syrup. It's a feeling that I despise to this day. It was kind of like trying to play Rachmaninoff on the piano while wearing snowmobile mittens. But if I wanted to avoid asthma attacks, then I had to take it. So for about six weeks every year, until I was 27 or 28 years old, I either couldn't breathe or I couldn't stay awake. So most of the time, I chose the ever-present loopiness of an antihistamine hangover. The sort of stumbling through life like a zombie, clueless about what was going on around me. If you ask my wife, all the antihistamines I took have had a residual effect. And she's convinced that I still have regular bouts of cluelessness, from which I emerge only occasionally, punctuated by intermittent periods of lucidity, usually while watching baseball. In the words of that great 20th century sage, Rodney Dangerfield, it ain't easy being me. Do you know that feeling, the, 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 that sort of sleepwalking through life feeling? I mean, that's how the Buddha described the way that most people experience the world. In fact, the word Buddha means the awakened one. The achievement of enlightenment is like sort of waking up while everybody else around you is in this pre-conscious stupor. Now, part of the reason that I think that Buddha would say so many people experience life as stuporous is because our world can be overwhelming, and rather than attending to life as it is, we find newer and ever more immersive ways to distract ourselves, sort of unable to claw through the haze. We look for diversions that will allow us to remain asleep and unaware. I, I went to the, the monastery at Gethsemane some years ago, and the guest master at the time, Father Damien, he did a sort of orientation talk where he got, you know, all the people sort of gathered in a room and he sort of welcomed us. And he said something I'll never forget. He said um, that the monks could offer us a gift that we'd be hard pressed to find in the real world. Well, I was, I was intrigued. He went on to say that most people are afraid of silence, which is why we reflexively turn on the radio when we get in the car, right? Or turn on the TV when we get home. Because we secretly fear silence. He said that's because it's in the silence that the voice of God is most easily heard. And as difficult as it may be for us to wrap our minds around, he said, most people are afraid of the voice of God. And so we turn up the volume to remain oblivious, numb. Now, living in our particular world at this moment, what with the 
Sturm und Drang of our politics, the chaos of a world where parents fear their children won't return home from school because some knucklehead with a gun thinks shooting kids is a great way to make a point, the ugliness of the reality in which people of color can no longer take for granted that the system that's supposed to dispense justice is hopelessly rigged against them, the dawning awareness that we're capable of locking up immigrant children in cages, the realization that there exists among us a resurgent white supremacy, a sort of creeping fascism. Living in this world, let's just be honest, regardless of your politics, trying to pay attention to what's going on around you, I mean, it is exhausting on an epic scale, right? I mean, if you're even a little aware, it's almost impossible not to become inured to the fear and the violence, to become sort of numb to a world awash in pain, dipped to the elbows in the blood of innocence, divided often from the people we've historically, traditionally loved the most. William Lamar writes, I wonder about the numbness in our own day. It's as if some diabolical cosmic dentist injects us with Novocaine on the regular. Can we even feel the pain anymore? There's so much violence around us that we seem to ignore it as a kind of coping mechanism. There is so much hateful speech that we, we've come to expect it. There are so many vile geopolitical shenanigans sponsored by the American empire and those nations trying to replace it that we wonder about the future of humanity and the good of the earth. The sleepwalking of the Buddha, or the numbness, as Lamar calls it, is difficult to avoid. It, it sort of creeps up on us, standing between us and the reality that God desires for us. But this is a problem, right? Because if God is most easily heard in the stillness and the violence, how is it that God can break through this storm and stress of our world? The, the, the numbness that feels like the safest place to be. How can God get through all of that? Well, I think that's what Luke's getting at in our gospel this morning. Now, the gospel of Luke was written sometime after the sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 CE. Now, it turns out the Jews who had been a particularly difficult group of people to control, had finally proved too much for the Romans to bear. And so after a Jewish anti-tax revolt in 66 CE, the Roman governor, Gessius Florus, plundered the temple, went in and stole all the gold from the temple, just as a kind of way of teaching these unruly peasants a lesson. Well, the Jews, of course, responded to this outrage by an even greater rebellion. So to make a long story short, after a great deal of fighting, the Romans decided not to fool with the situation any longer, and they just bulldozed the city and the temple along with it. Now what, you may be thinking, does the first Jewish-Roman war have to do with our gospel reading for this morning? See, that's an excellent question. That's why I love you guys so much, because you're always thinking ahead. 
Well, the thing is, during this tremendous upheaval between the Jews and the Romans, the Christians were closely associated with their Jewish cousins in the Roman mind. So the, the Christians in Jerusalem, of which there were still a pretty large number at the time of Luke's writing, found themselves constantly trying to stay out of the middle of a huge fight between their Jewish cousins and the Roman goons. And so consequently, Luke's readers were an especially, they were in an especially difficult socio-political position. There was a great deal of violence in the air, a violence that didn't distinguish between Christians and Jews. Now, living in a war zone for any length of time can cause you to shut down. We know this now. We call it what? PTSD, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder. And the whole thing is so overwhelming that as a defense me mechanism, people become numb to the pain. They sleepwalk their way through life. But that's no real, uh, that's no real haven of peace, right? Because even in their sleep, they're often plagued. So how does God break through this? I mean, you can see the problem, right? If God is most easily heard in the silence, what happens when there is no silence? How does God make God's self heard in the chaos when, when people are more likely to shut down than to listen up? Well, according to Luke, the way God does it is by turning everything upside down. That's how God breaks through. When Jesus was wandering the Palestinian outback 40-some-odd years prior to Luke's writing, God was busy breaking through the numbness, turning the world upside down in, in Jesus' confrontation of the unjust systems that fed on the misery of the vulnerable. I mean, every time Jesus called out the injustice of the Roman-sponsored temple system, every time he restored an outcast to community, every time he offered healing to the debilitated, every time he offered forgiveness to the sinner, every time he extended hospitality to the weak and the despised, God showed up piercing the stupor of the people who felt they, like they could no longer have the resources to deal with the world that they inhabited. See, by the time that Luke writes, things have gotten even worse. Being heard in a world where the easiest thing to do is shut down, I mean, it requires something extra, something audacious enough to sort of break through. Just prior to our text for this morning, Jesus describes what that kind of a world might look like. <coughs> he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. And then those in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those inside the city must leave it, and those out in the country must not enter it. For these are the days of vengeance. As a fulfillment of all that is written, woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress on the earth, and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword 
and to be taken away as captives among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Merry Christmas. I mean, but how does God break through that? Well, Jesus says there will be signs in those days, the sun and the moon and the stars, and on the earth, distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and from foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud <coughs> with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Now what Jesus is dipping his toe in here is a form of <coughs> a form of literature called apocalyptic. You know, the apocalypse. The end of the world, the zombies walking around. No, I don't know, probably not that, but Signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, distress among the nations, people from fainting from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, the powers of the heavens shaking. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you expect to have an R rating attached to it, isn't it? I mean, everything about what makes our current world operate with such brutal efficiency in the service of the powerful is going to be dismantled. There will be great dislocation. The things that we take for granted as stable will be destabilized. The current order will be subverted and a new reality will begin to take shape. See, apocalyptic literature is dismissed with a kind of patronizing wave by the well-situated as a thing that's fine for the rubes and the dullards. But sophisticated people they don't pay attention to the end of the world talk, right? But I would like to suggest to you that the tendency to shrug, uh, shrug off apocalypticism is itself a sign that we've grown too used to the, the way things are, which is to, to say too used to a world that seems designed, let's just be honest, with people like us in mind. A world where one group enjoys a life of relative ease, while others do not, is not the world that God has in mind. Apocalyptic is God's way of breaking through the numbness and reminding the world that if it's going to satisfy God's desires, the world is going to have to be reordered, turned on its head, upside down. Now, this is always a difficult word for those used to a world that serves them. People at the top of the food chain, people satisfied just fine with the way things are, but they don't want to hear things about the world being shaken up. It's too comfortable. Why do that? But here's the thing. There are other people for whom such news is long-awaited redemption, a bit of hope in a 
place of shadows. Those on the bottom, the small and the forgotten, those who have little to gain from the per uh, preservation of the present arrangements, they get all kinds of hopeful upon hearing Jesus talk about a new world designed with them first in mind. Columbia, South Carolina. Mary Chestnut's diary of March 1865. She wrote, Sherman marched off in a solid column, leaving not so much as a blade of grass behind. A howling wilderness, land laid waste, dust and ashes. She's describing the end of the Old South. But what Mrs. Chestnut failed to mention how is in this tale of devastation and woe is that there was a group of people who had spent their lives in hell, treated like property, who were now dancing in the streets. See, for all of those benumbed by the current chaos in our world, God is piercing the antihistamine hangover that feels like the safest place to ride out the storm. It may not sound like good news to the people profiting from the present arrangement, but there are a lot of people who are only too happy to see the powers of heaven shaken and the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and great glory. So many people need to hear this good news. So stand up. Raise your head, shake off your slumber because your redemption is drawing nigh. There's a new world coming. And that, that is the good news of Advent. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.